Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant and a co-founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And I'm Karen Bodnar. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a general pediatrician. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. And this podcast is sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Just so you know, the content of our podcasts does not necessarily reflect official policies or protocols of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hey, Karen, how's it going? Good, how are you? Pretty good, pretty good. We had crocuses up in our yard and then the snow came and so they're all like buried. Those poor, beautiful little yellow petals are buried under this heavy snowfall, which is quite the bummer. But at least we don't live in Connecticut. <laughs> yes, it has been a rough winter. Yes, it's been a rough winter. Yep. At but least that's what I hear. Spring is here and uh, that means it's all good for breastfeeding babies who can be walking around outside in the sunshine they don't have to be like all under winter coats and stuff to nurse right (laughs) yes absolutely (laughs) right um so today on our podcast you're going to talk about chicken pox correct and then i'm going to talk about gut microbiome so i'm going to let you take it away okay so um in the um i think most recent issue of breastfeeding medicine um there's a case report called Chickenpox Infection During Lactation from Nalan Karabayir and colleagues in Istanbul, Turkey. And uh, this was a case study of a woman who developed chickenpox, also known as varicella zoster virus, while she was breastfeeding her four-month-old. And she chose to continue breastfeeding her baby, who did not catch the virus. Um As we know, chickenpox is a common infection which is spread through respiratory droplets um, or aerosols from skin lesions or from contact with those skin lesions. People are contagious from one to two days before the rash until all the lesions are crusted. And separation of an infectious mother from her infant and interruption of breastfeeding has been recommended while the mother is contagious. During that time, expressed breast milk can be given if there are no lesions on the breast. Um, And this patient, who was a 27-year-old, had skin lesions for about three days prior to presenting to the hospital. Um, She had no history of having chickenpox previously, and she had had a recent exposure to it. Her labs showed um, positive IgM for the virus, and... um, This is a common blood test for current infection. She did have blisters and lesions on the areola of both breasts. After discussing the risks and benefits of breastfeeding, this mother wanted to continue directly feeding her infant. And they tested her breast milk and found that there was um, varicella zoster virus DNA in the breast milk detected by um, PCR six days after the start of the rash. The mother and baby did not receive immunoglobulin because it was not available in Turkey. On day 10 of her rash, this mother was diagnosed with pneumonia, 
a possible complication of varicella zoster, and she received IV acyclovir therapy for seven days. She then recovered without any problems. The baby was followed for three weeks and did not have any eruptions. So um, I think this is really interesting because transmission of infection through breast milk is well documented for several viruses, including CMV, HIV, and HTLV. And a previous study didn't detect um, varicella DNA in breast milk in a um, postpartum mother with chickenpox. So in the previous recommendations, it was con- it was thought that the mother's breast milk was safe and that really um, the baby needed to be isolated from skin lesions and respiratory secretions. In other cases, when an infant's mom has a rash that develops either five days before delivery or two days after delivery, then varicella zoster immunoglobulin is indicated um, for the infant whether or not they're breastfeeding um, because it is likely the baby was exposed to the virus in utero. And if that immunoglobulin is unavailable, it's suggested the baby be prophylaxed with acyclovir um, if that can be provided to the infant. However, we don't have good data on the effect of that um, medication in healthy breastfeeding children. The authors of this case speculate that the infant may not have um, received much acyclovir through the mother's breast milk since the mother did not receive it until the 10th day of her illness. Um, They think that is probably not what prevented the baby from contracting chickenpox. And they suggest that a mother may safely continue to breastfeed her baby during infection. However, of course, they think more case reports um, will be required before there's a final conclusion on this matter. Yeah. Well, you know, to me, if um, mom develops chickenpox and the baby's already four months old, the baby's been exposed before mom even has um, her lesions. I mean, she gets that little runny nose a couple days before the chickenpox, so they're infectious as soon as the runny nose starts. Uh, not necessarily just with the lesions on the skin, is my impression. And so and that's how it gets spread from kid to kid, you know, I mean, besides Absolutely. having the lesions, right? So um, so then why would you take, why would you separate them out? Because a baby's going to either going to get it or not get it. And, and a lot of babies have subclinical cases. I mean, boy, after years and years of doing family medicine, I have people who swear up and down that they never had chickenpox or mothers are certainly never had chickenpox and they're immune. And so there are these people that just get like a couple lesions and they never show much of anything. So, yeah, you know. I, there are definitely people who have subclinical um, cases. And the other thing that, you know, I thought about was in, in older children, if people are exposed to varicella's varicella zoster virus and they haven't been immunized, there is a window um, during which we immunize them, but that doesn't apply to to such young babies. Right, because we can't give it to them until they're 12 months. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. But yeah, that's what that's what we did when, um, when the vaccine came out in 1995. I remember um, we did, you know, it was, when the vaccine came around, people were still getting chickenpox. 
we used to use the vaccine uh, when, be, when children were exposed to chickenpox and they didn't start the lesions yet. We would give the vaccine in the hopes that they would have less lesser illness, but it takes a couple of weeks, I believe, for the vaccine to work. But um, I, I mean, if I had a mother in my practice who had chickenpox and she, you know, had a four-month-old baby and she was nursing the baby and suddenly she came in with a rash, am I really going to take the baby away from the mother, you know? I mean, right. I just don't, I can't imagine. I mean, that baby's doomed to get it, you know, one way or another. And so, um, you know, you can give the baby um, Vizig, right? Mm -hmm. um, and um, and even um, if the baby develops symptoms, the baby could have acyclovir or Valtrex, Valacyclovir. Yes. So I, um, you know, I just can't imagine taking the baby away because the baby's the baby's doomed either way. The the fate has already been clenched for that baby, as far as I'm concerned. So, because it's so infectious, I mean, we don't, you know, we consider anyone, you know, the vast majority of people born before 1995 to be immune because it's so infectious. So, yeah. So that's interesting. I think my, you know, I think when you when you look at books about chickenpox, it seems to me that the recommendations have always been around that peripartum time. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the recommendations about about keeping moms and babies away later on um, has never really been very firmly um, sort of there's never I've never seen a firm policy that says keep that baby away. You know, I don't know if you have seen anything no, like I, that. I agree with you. I think that, you know, the there there isn't very hard evidence that there's a certain age at which um you know, except for the vaccine coming into play at the one year of age. And, and, and I think that for me, if I was breastfeeding, the risks of stopping breastfeeding, especially for, you know, this can be a several week period and you may not be able to reestablish breastfeeding or you may not be able to maintain your supply. So the, the risks of then formula feeding for the next year versus right. continuing breastfeeding, the benefits, you know, it's, that's how I think about breastfeeding in general is. Right, right. The mom has to start pumping and she may not, you know, she may not pump as often because now she has to double feed, you know, pump and then bottle feed. And so then she may lose her supply and that's not great for this baby who then is exposed. Um, and then you're dealing with milk that's been sitting out or refrigerated or frozen and not fresh milk. And, and you really want that baby to get the milk that has, you know, um, IgA that would be generated against chickenpox. So, and that's the the other thing is you know after 24 to 72 hours of this mom being exposed, she's starting to make her um, IgA to that virus, which is then going to be coating the baby's oral pharynx to protect them from those respiratory droplets. Right. Right. Yeah. So I think, yeah, so we've decided our, uh, we've decided national, international policy on this podcast about chickenpox, right? We're going to call this the podcast working group. Exactly. Uh, 15. Right, right. All right. I think we beat that one down. <laughs> so, um, so let's talk about um, the gut microbiome. So, oh, I would love to. Yeah. So I reviewed an article that Marsha Walker wrote in Clinical Lactation, which was published in the fifth volume, issue four, 2014, which was probably December. And um, she basically just summarized some issues about the gut microbiome and formula feeding. 
So she starts out in an article saying that in 2013, in the 2013 breastfeeding report card from the Center for Disease Control for the United States, that nearly 25% of infants born in the United States receive formula before two days of age, which to me actually sounded pretty low. I thought it would be a lot higher than that, depending on where you are. I thought the statistic was closer to 50%. Yeah, but she said, according to the report card, it's 25%. Um, and we know that formula supplementation can have a negative effect on mom's milk supply and also is associated with a decreased duration of nursing. But the reason that she's talking, the reason she was bringing it up here is that formula can actually change the infant um, gut microbiome. So there's been a lot of work um, done looking at bacteria in the gut, especially lately. There's just a lot of talk about in different, all sorts of different types of medical literature about the role that gut bacteria play in our health. And for those who are listening, um, when we say a microbiome, what we're talking about are communities of bacteria in certain parts of the body. So we humans have microbiomes in their gut, in the vagina, in the lung, in the nose, sinuses, all kinds of areas where there are germs present. And the lactating breast has a very rich microbiome as well. So um, we know... We know from studies that bacteria in the gut play an important role in the gut development itself. And also the bacteria um, helps us uh, with many of our physiologic functions. So for example, bacteria in our gut are important to break down food um, and also generate and absorb certain nutrients. So um, a good example of how bacteria play a role with things that we take in would be the birth control pill. So many of us um, know uh, that if you take that women who take the birth control pill, if they're also taking antibiotics, the antibiotics can disrupt the effect of the birth control pill. And if people are out there and they're taking the birth control pill and they don't know that, they should know that because you because those people might get pregnant if they don't know that. But what happens is that when women take the birth control pill, the estrogen um, is metabolized by the liver into um, some um, some other hormones, which are the metabolites. And those are excreted um, from the liver into the gut. And then the bacteria in the gut actually convert those metabolites back into estrogen. And then they get reabsorbed from the gut into the liver and into the bloodstream again. So that keeps the estrogen levels high. So when those bacteria are killed by antibiotics, the estrogen levels in the bloodstream go down, and that's how women who are taking the pill and taking the birth control pill get, and taking antibiotics become pregnant. Can I just tell you that I did not know that that was why antibiotics interfered with the birth control pill. I thought it was because of upregulation up of certain liver enzymes. It's actually both. Actually, it is exactly both. Um, and I always thought it was more so because of the uh, change in the micro change in the microbiome, um, but as I read about this, I realized, whoa, there also is. I guess it is the um, the induction of or, or ramping up of certain enzymes in the in the liver too. So you're you're correct. Um, so so there's that. So and we know that um, bacteria play an important role in B in B12 manufacturing. So when we give antibiotics to people who are on warfarin, like blood thinners their um, blood thinning level goes up a lot because they don't have the generation of vitamin B12 as much anymore. So the bacteria, you know, they're, they're basically commensal, like they're our buddies, like they help us in many ways with things in the, in the ways that our bodies work. Um, so in addition, 
we know that the, that bacteria help us to prevent to prevent infection, and that's why we oftentimes take probiotics when we're taking antibiotics or when we have diarrhea. Doctors say take probiotics because the healthy bacteria help to um, strengthen the immunity of the gut so that we don't have so much of an effect from different types of diarrheas like norovirus or other types of um, like bacteria, bacterial diarrheas. The, the bacteria also play a role in maturing the cells of the gut, and that's what's important for babies in particular. So one thing to understand is our, our gut makes up 60 to 70% of our immune system. So we always think of our immune system as being our bone marrow and our spleen, um, but really most of our immune system lies in the, in the lining of our guts. And so I always try to teach parents about this because parents freak out about their kids like not washing their hands or, you know, touch or like licking the the grocery carts when they're sitting in the grocery carts at the store. Just, you know? I mean, those are like dis disgusting or eating dirt. And they say, well, how come my kid doesn't get infected when they do that? Isn't that horrible? And I say, no, no, no. You know, that's where that's that's like that's like the lion's den for germs. You know, the baby's taking those germs and it just falls into the pit of acid and all those other immune factors that are lining the gut. I mean, that's like the main entrance for germs into a, a child's into in, in the human system is right through that gut. So that's why our gut is so important for our immune system, because that's how we fight off infection and prevent all kinds of invasions. Um, so um, the thing is that our, so one of the ways that our gut prevents us from having germs and other toxins enter our system is through what are called tight junctions. And tight junctions are spaces that sit between cells. And those tight junctions um, determine what gets through the gut walls, such as um, nutrients, toxins, like certain medications or heavy metals or any other kind of toxins or you know chemicals that we ingest, and also germs. In the first couple of weeks of life, those tight junctions are actually pretty loose and pretty permeable, um, and they gradually close and become more restrictive as the baby ages. Um, and maybe this is one reason why babies, when they're first born, are so much more at risk for infection because those tight junctions are open and germs can get through the gut wall easier. But the thing is, the, the closure of those tight junctions really is orchestrated by hormones, which are in breast milk, and, grow, uh, and growth factors in breast milk, as well as gut bacteria. So this is really why um, feeding can be so important for gut bacteria, because breastfed babies have different gut bacteria than formula-fed babies. So babies who are breastfed have a, a much more acidic gut environment than formula-fed babies because of um, having different bacteria. So the balance of bacteria for breastfed babies tends to be predominantly bifidobacteria, which are healthier and more protective bacteria. And babies who formula feed have higher amounts of E. coli and other bacteria that are more likely to be associated with disease. And we know that bifidobacteria plays a more active role in maturing that gut and those tight junctions than the more pathologic um, bacteria. So when breastfed babies get formula, they actually produce less acid in their environment, and that changes the balance of the bacteria. And so um, when this balance changes, um, not only is there a reduction, an increase in, uh, in the increase in the pH, meaning that there's less acidity, 
and uh, it we there's a dip, there's the difference in bacteria too, and so there's a slowing of the gut maturity and more gut permeability, allowing invasion of those pathogens and um, harmful other chemicals and exposures. So she gave one example in her, in her report about one study that was done in 2009 that studied 62 premature infants and found that the infants who received 75% of their diet as breast milk had much lower intestinal permeability compared to the formula-fed infants or those who received just small amounts of breast milk. And so one difference is how these babies handled casein. So casein is the is the milk protein that's um, often used in formula. Any formula that's cow's milk based has casein. Well, in formula fed babies, that casein attracts inflammatory cells called neutrophils to the gut. And that increases the likelihood of inflammation and opening of, the t of those tight junctions between intestinal cells. And that um, allows passage of bacteria and the toxins from the bacteria as well as viruses into the bloodstream. So that's why, and so that seems to also play a role in necrotizing enterocolitis for babies who are formula fed versus babies who are breastfed. So babies who are breastfed who have some casein supplementation are less likely to have so much inflammation from that casein compared to a formula fed baby. Because, um, you know, in addition to to striking the right bacterial balance with breast milk. Breast milk has all these other anti-inflammatory factors like um, lysozyme and antibodies and lactadherin and oligosaccharides, lots and lots of different factors that we're, and we keep discovering new ones that play a role in that gut maturity. Yeah, this has been a really interesting evolution of all the things they've discovered over the past few years of why breastfed babies in the NICU are less at risk for necrotizing enterocolitis. Right. Initially, mm -hmm. we thought, really, it's just, oh, they don't have as much bad bacteria. And then we realized, oh, there's all this inflammation. Right. The babies who are being formula fed. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's really amazing. It's kind of like it's not just one thing. It's a variety of things that all kind of come together to make these babies more sick when they're not fed a normal diet, which would be breast milk. And then the other thing is that more and more studies are coming out showing that um, people who were formula fed um, as babies have a higher risk of autoimmune illnesses um, when they're older, probably because of um, having poor gut maturity as infants. Um, and I personally think that I have seen that over the years in my practice, that the kids who I've seen who have really severe autoimmune illnesses like 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 the like the crossover illnesses, like the kids who have not only rheumatoid arthritis but you know lupus and and scleroderma, um, where they have two or three of these all together. Many of these kids, in my experience, have been formula fed, um, not you know not breastfed. So interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I think epidemiologically, work is coming out showing that um, that early infant feeding does play a role in, in, in illnesses as adults. The other really fascinating thing about gut bacteria is the gut-brain access and finding that that early gut microbiome has an effect on the development of the central nervous system, which, i.e., the brain, um, and that there's actually an effect on the neurotransmitter levels, particularly serotonin. So um, it, um, there was one study that was done where it was an animal study where they took rats that were 
the rats had no bacteria in their guts. You know, with rats and all these experimental animals, they can like just have designer animals with different types of health problems. So they had this cohort of rats that had no bacteria in their guts. And they found that they had a much greater stress response to stressful events than mice who had um, higher amounts of, um, who had bacteria, which were the healthy bacteria, the bifidobacteria in their guts. So um, I think we'll see more of that. And it's thought that that early microbiome has an influence on anxiety in children and even uh, possibly other neurodevelopmental disorders like autism and schizophrenia. So it'd be very interesting to see that over time. My impression is that so far the epidemiological literature does not show that breastfeeding is protective of autism. Um, but I don't know that literature very well, but that's been my impression so far. Yeah, I, I am not familiar with um, any studies that that say that it is protective. Right, right. So the bottom line is that we have a lot to learn about bacteria in the gut and um, how that plays a role in gut development and what that does to um, the greater you know, health of the individual over years and also how it affects the brain. But I think that when we get back to that question of like, so what's one bottle of formula in the hospital, I think that now we have some really good evidence that when you start to give formula to breastfed babies, um, once you start tipping the scales and, and you know half or more of that is formula, um, and maybe even less, you're changing the acidity of the gut, you're reducing the bifidobacteria, it'll take a long time, several weeks, according to Marshall Walker's article, to get that bifido population back up with exclusive breastfeeding after the formula supplementation is over. And, and that then delays gut maturity. So it does, it is a really big deal to be given formula early on. Um, mm. So I, I have a, sorry, I have a, a study that I cite sometimes when I'm speaking that showed in one in one instance 40 mLs, which is less than two ounces of formula, um, in the early early you know few first few weeks of life can can increase the risk for food allergies. Interesting. So it's, it's a it's a small vol you know that what is one bottle question. I think this is showing us that. Yeah, it does make a difference. Right. And so one of our hospitals, we have two maternity hospitals in town, and one of our hospitals began extending the donor milk to the um, postpartum population, not just the NICU population, but the babies on the floor that need supplementation, which I was so excited to see that. So I think that when we have some hospitals in the community doing that, hopefully other hospitals will feel the pressure to provide that donor milk as well. Because, you know, when you think about it, it's really cheap. I mean, as much as, yeah, so it's 4 to $6 an ounce, for a good reason, of course, because it's pasteurized and it's been care. You know, it 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 all has gone through it's a screening tested. process. Yeah, it's tested. But the bottom line is that these babies are taking such small volumes. My gosh, that's such a small price to pay for an incredible protection and yeah. you know promotion of health. So I think that you know all of us should really be rallying to um, try to provide uh, donor milk um, when there's not sufficient mother's milk for early supplementation. And oh, yeah, really... there's good studies that show that for every dollar spent on banked donor milk, that it can save more than $11 in Medi-Cal costs. There you go. Mm -hmm. Great. So it's worth the money. Worth the money. That's We have to get out that message. So that's the um, podcast for today. I encourage anyone who's listening to like us on our Facebook page. I think we're getting close to 400 likes, which is so exciting. And... Um, and then we'll be back again in a month with some exciting things. I think we'll talk about contraception 
um, on our next podcast because the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine has a new contraceptive protocol out. And anything else that looks fun and exciting in the news. <laughs> nice so, talking to you. Yeah, take care, Karen. I'll talk to you again soon. If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy, f as in frank, med.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.